This is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Fleury, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. What? Where's the cowbell? <laughs> What's going on? I know it's early, but come on. He tried to he tried to do the banter over top of my banter. Uh, Wait, did you actually hit it and it just got cut out? Nope. No, he he usurped my banter and didn't do the whacking part. <laughs> Ryan, what's going on, man? Every time, ever since you've been back, you've just been sabotaging the show. That's right. He's he's trouble. This one. You, you are. Little. You're like a Zoom bomber, like a <laughs> podcast bomber. <laughs> Run. Well, okay. We want it. We want that cowbell. Our, our <laughs> listeners demand the cowbell. All right. Okay, that's better. Uh, hey, it's really early. <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely too early. <laughs> Whose idea was this? And, and oh, yes, and yes, dear audience, you will hear us complaining about that probably for the next hour. Oh, it wasn't so bad, was it? Uh, well, listen, we should tell people why we're up so early. Uh, because we are talking to somebody from a very foreign land uh, about a really big topic. What are, we, what are we talking about today, Ryan? Well, today we are speaking with Michelle Woods, who is a director at the World Intellectual Property Organization, all about the Marrakesh Treaty. The Marrakesh Treaty. Yeah, you know, we... Um, we, this is such an important topic, and we're just too stupid to actually do it justice to try to talk about it ourselves. So Ooh, uh, I got a good question. Yeah. To, to, yeah. Yeah. To who? To Michelle or, or here? Well, for for Michelle. Oh, okay, good. So you think it's it's? Do they do they pronounce it Whippo or Wipo? Oh, that's true. Inquiring thinking, minds want to know. I I think it's got to be Whippo. Wipo. Because Wipo, I feel like there's there's a market for like some some sort of hygiene wipes <laughs> that might that there <laughs> that there might be a copyright issue there, a trademark issue there, because Wipos. Don't leave home without them. <laughs> what do we want to talk about? How about that TikTok thing? I saw that you sent that. Um, yeah, that's alarming. Uh, give people a, a brief overview of that, because that's crazy. So the, the hacker group, Anonymous, um, came out with a bunch of information. Um, I believe it was last week. Um, basically talking about how TikTok is a piece of spyware for the Chinese government. Uh, much in the same way, they say, that uh, Instagram and... Uh, um, Facebook are platforms that can be accessed as spyware by the U.S. government, um, but TikTok um, is is pretty galling in the permissions that it allows uh, access to on on your phone. When you do the the standard setup of TikTok, if you don't if you 
don't disable access to specific things, they have the right to um, install software without you knowing it. Um, they have the right to access your phone, phone logs and contacts. Um, they have um, the ability to turn your camera off and on. Um, I mean, there's there's all kinds of, of things that this software can do that are not really required to post a video online. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely one to watch out for. And quite honestly, uh, the most responsible thing you can do with TikTok is get it off your phone. Because <laughs> it's... Uh, it is a, an absolute uh, nightmare in terms of uh, security. I mean, if this is true, uh, again, it's just so nefarious, but like evil genius. Because what better thing to put spyware into than an app that is just completely like a huge waste of time and just makes people do stupid things in front of a camera? Brilliant. Well, the scary thing, like Steve just mentioned, you know, it gives them the ability to turn your camera on or off whenever they want to. Like, <laughs> just crazy. if you're if you're if you're concerned at all about privacy, you know, get that off your phone. That's scary. That is scary. Yeah, that's scary. Uh, you know, but we live in such a weird age, though, because I feel like part of me wants to totally buy into that, but then there's that little part of me in the back of my mind going. This could just be somebody, a rumor that somebody started that caught traction right. online and, you know, it gets to us and we're like, yeah, that's true because it fits our narrative. But it could be just as big of a pile of crap as, like, say, something like the anti-vax movement. Like, it could just be wrong. Well, how um, many have but, we talked about, you know, we, you see a headline, right, and it's, it's clickbait. So, you know, you've really... Now, like you mentioned, in the society and day and time we live in, you may see a headline, but you really have to do your research to find out if something even has yeah. a hint of truth or if it's just, you know, out in left field. That's right. Yeah. So it, it's uh, it's just weird. You got to question everything, which it sucks about the information age. Like, I hate <laughs> that. Like, I, I miss the days when you could just open the newspaper and you read a headline and that was you know, all the headlines were the same. You didn't have papers that recorded different facts, except for the National Enquirer or like the Weekly <laughs> World News. But then, you know, we, we all knew that, you know, Bat Boy didn't actually exist. <laughs> well, most of us did. So I've, I've got um, I've got a web page up here. This is from a company called Proofpoint. They're a um, they're a cybersecurity company and they've got the list of uh, permissions that TikTok requires uh, as shown in the Android interface. Uh, but uh, let's see, the standard ones you'd expect, take pictures and videos, contacts, read your contacts, uh, access your precise location by GPS, uh, access your approximate location via network, record audio, read the contents of your SD card, modify or delete your SD card contents. All, all, all of that, well, no, that all makes sense because you, you know, you've got to be able to take a picture, record a video, have sure. it go to your SD card, whatever. Yeah, you do. They don't. <laughs> well, well, the app does when it says... The, the app does, yeah. So so here's the other ones, though. Uh, have full, full network access, 
view network connections, view Wi-Fi connections, prevent your phone from sleeping, retrieve running apps, run at startup, control vibration, request install packages, install shortcuts, uninstall shortcuts, read home screen settings, toggle sync on and off, read badge notifications, reorder running apps, change your audio settings, and send sticky broadcast. Now, I have no idea what a sticky broadcast is, but... Um, the the list that I saw from Anonymous also said that it had the ability to install apps, but maybe that's the shortcuts that they're referring to. I'm not sure. So, anyways, it's still wow. it's a it's a pretty sweeping set of of uh, permissions you give that uh, that application. Yeah. Um, and they can they can access all all aspects of your life through there. Yeah. How yeah. Many of, how many of us install an app and just say you know allow 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 okay right? Ninety nine percent of people. Exactly. Yeah. Nobody's reading the EULA or uh, or or anything, right? Yeah. Well, I must be a rarity then, because I actually do check app permissions and disable <laughs> certain aspects really? of them. See, you're yeah. part of the one percent. Good for you. Everybody follow Steve's example. Yeah. That's right. Um, but still, like, I, it's it's just not. I don't. I don't feel like it's out of the realm of possibility at all. Like I feel like it almost makes sense. Like if I was going, if I was a country that I wanted to, you know, install spyware. Uh, that's what you do. You hide it in plain sight. Well, and you know, I'm just thinking here, how how many of us have even looked at you know the permissions that Instagram or Facebook or Twitter want access to? Like I haven't looked at Facebook. I've been on Facebook since 2007. You know, well, 13 years yeah. and I, I, you know, who knows what permissions I granted them access to? I don't remember. Well, I'm sure domestically, I mean, that's, you know, uh, we could go down a whole rabbit hole of, you know, Facebook or Instagram being sort of a pawn of, of you know, the government that is right. using it as a platform to sort of, you know, do surveillance on their populace. But well, we need you know, conspiracy, I think. <laughs> But now we're in the now we're in like Infowars and Alex Jones territory where we're now we're just spreading conspiracy theories, which would be a fun show too. I feel like. Mm-hmm. Yep. AT Ooh, conspiracy. A, a full a full uh, conspiracy theory show that'd be fun. Yep. Hey. We can we can, we can go all Alex Jones. Write that down, Ryan. No, you guys write it down. And start looking for guests. <laughs> guests. We'll get Alex Jones. Who, who do we know who's crazy paranoid? <laughs> Actually, a few. Yeah. Actually, I might be. <laughs> Just interview me. Um, what else? Anything else of interest, boys? I read, you know, I read an interesting uh, article on, I think it was a, a UBC uh, paper about um, how... You know, it, essentially in university, with everything moving online, that it was really accessibility was was going to be really important going forward, especially if, if they're looking at, you know, next year, a lot of universities are, are talking about continuing to do virtual classes and sort of sort of the, the challenges that they're facing in making sure that everything is accessible. Um, you know, everything from, you know, say online lectures, well, they need to make sure that those are all transcribed and they, they have um, captioning. Mm -hmm. And that can be a problem because 
um, the turnaround on that, on producing captions, can be enough of a lag where somebody who, say, needs captions, they're not necessarily going to get that lecture immediately. So there's a, there's, a, there's a lag there that they have to address. And all kinds of other things, like you know, making sure that all the, the, the tests are accessible and that somebody who has to, say, do a test in a different way than normal um, that's that's a real challenge to try to do that in an online setting. So I thought that that's, that's really interesting because, and my hope is that once again, going forward and trying to put a, a bright side to this, this pandemic and everything moving online is that maybe we will see um, accessibility, online accessibility driven forward a bit, just be out of necessity. Well, it's certainly going to have an effect on the on the companies that provide services like video conferencing and uh, the companies that do um, online education platforms, um, because you know we we know from our own experience that in certain cases they're not very accessible. And uh, now um, there's going to be more and more demand for them. And uh, one of the questions that is going to come up is. What is your level of accessibility? So we've already seen Zoom take off simply due to the fact that it is a, a very accessible platform. Right. Uh, but but somebody like WebEx has really got to step up their game and, Absolutely. and uh, improve, make improvements. Yeah. No, the companies I've been meeting with for the last couple of weeks work for work-related use WebEx, and it's just a nightmare. Just a nightmare. And, you know, with these days, with enough companies... Um, moving to an online infrastructure and having employees that w would need an accessible platform, that's, that could be the difference between which platform that they, that they pick. So, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. A, a platform like WebEx really needs to step up their accessibility game in order to compete. And I think that they're already behind um, for, that, for that very reason. So yeah. it's, yeah, I think it's really going to be an interesting year. Well, I think you're already seeing, you know, Google has come up with their Google Meet platform and there's hotkeys and stuff, and I haven't tried it personally yet. Microsoft has, has come up with Teams and is doing a huge push on that product, and there's a lot of accessibility built into Teams. You know, we've got Zoom, so we already have some more options for the online meeting space that are accessible. But there are others, like we say, WebEx, GoToMeeting. I'm sure there's others out there that just really need to catch up. Hi, everyone. This is Steve from Canadian Assistive Technologies, and this is a shameless plug. We've been working hard to find less expensive Braille products so we can make Braille available for more people. We can now say that we have Canada's most comprehensive lineup of inexpensive Braille solutions, including the 20-cell Braille Me from InnoVision, the soon-to-be-released 40-cell Orbit Braille display from Orbit Research, as well as the world's least expensive multi-line Braille reader, the Canute from Bristol Braille. You can have a look at them all on our website at www.canastech.com. Joining us now is Michelle Woods, Director at the World Intellectual Property Organization. Hello, Michelle. Hello. Good morning, afternoon, evening. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much for taking time out of your evening for us. Ah, you're very welcome. Always happy to talk about the Marrakesh Treaty. 
Excellent, because we know nothing about it. <laughs> that's well, not true. We know a smattering. I'm pretty sure that's not true, yeah. Blind and I want more books. <laughs> <laughs> We've never done a show at 8 a.m. this 8 a.m. in the morning, so bear with oh, that's, that's true. That's actually a big caveat. Yes. So if we if we seem especially stupid. It's only because uh, we haven't had enough coffee. It's because we're especially stupid also. <laughs> Maybe we can just start with giving us a little bit of a snapshot of, of the Marrakesh Treaty um, and, its, and its origins maybe and just what it, what it does. Okay. So the Marrakesh Treaty was adopted, the text was adopted by the World Intellectual Property Organization member states at a diplomatic conference in 2013. What the treaty does is it provides for two things related to providing access to more books and other printed materials in accessible formats. So one thing is that the treaty requires the contracting parties to the treaty to adopt national exceptions or limitations to copyright. And in the end, what that means is that permission is not required to make an accessible format of a work that is in copyright. So normally, if if a work is in copyright, it is necessary to get permission to make a different kind of format um, and often to pay. And uh, in this case, and there are other kinds of limitations and exceptions as well, but this is an important one. Member states joining this treaty agree that they will have this kind of exception so that permission doesn't need to be sought from the copyright holder. Then the second thing that the treaty does, and this is more unique, is that it provides for cross-border sharing of those accessible format copies. Usually works that are made or adapted based on limitations and exceptions are only made for use within one national territory because these limitations and exceptions to copyright under international treaties are designed to address unique national situations that require some modification of the broader treaty principles. But here, the showing was made by a lot of organizations, including the World Blind Union, but also others, that they're really needed for purposes of efficiency and um, providing more works to more people in more formats uh, to be cross-border sharing and that that should be permitted across borders. Copyright normally is bound by national territory. So that is a pretty big departure from the standard copyright principles, but one that the member states recognized was important in this case. The example that was given uh, over and over in the discussions revolved around Harry Potter and the fact that you know, maybe nine or 10 different English speaking countries made adapted accessible versions of the Harry Potter books because they couldn't share them across borders. And it would be much more effective to have those accessible format works made in one country by, for, for example, one organization, maybe in Canada, 
CNIB, Canadian National Institute for the Blind, or other organizations, um, and other organiza comparable organizations in other countries, meanwhile, would adapt or make accessible versions of other works so that more works overall could be made and shared. And that was so important because of the background to why the Marrakesh Treaty was needed and the case that was made for it that less at the time the treaty was being discussed, less than 5% of the works in the world were estimated to be available in accessible formats. And realistically in de developing countries, uh, sometimes that really was close to zero. And so to be able to increase efficiencies and use resources more effectively in order to make more works available was one of the main goals of the member states. So then if CNIB makes a work available in multiple formats, is there then a huge library database somewhere that the other countries who have joined in can actually search and see, okay, this has already been developed and we can access it from here? Um, certainly, there are actually, there are a number of efforts to develop databases, but uh, here at WIPO, we have one, um, uh, the Global Book Service, where we catalog, we collect cataloged library data from what are called under the treaty authorized entities, but they're mainly libraries that serve the blind and visually impaired, can also be other kinds of institutions, but in most countries, that function is filled by uh, particular designated libraries. So these libraries that join the Global Book, Serve Book Service provide their catalog information, and then it, that is a resource for right now libraries, although the hope is to expand it to also individuals, to find out in which other countries, what other participating libraries have a work in accessible format. And when we started, we didn't have the Marrakesh Treaty in force, and we didn't have exceptions that matched up with each other. So it was necessary to get permission from publishers and rights holders each time a work was made available after the information was found through the Global Book Service. Now that so many countries are joining Marrakesh, we're up to 68 um, uh, contracting parties. And um, since one of those contracting parties actually covers all the members of the EU, we're um, getting over 90 countries that are participating in the Marrakesh Treaty. Now, countries that have implemented the Marrakesh Treaty, we don't need to go through that step of getting permission from the publisher. So the process can be much faster of transferring the files between the different libraries and uh, making the collections available. And there have also been more and more efforts to reach out to developing countries, to countries that um, are just starting in this area to share these resources and to make these materials and this global resource available, but also to work directly on the ground with startups, uh, startup authorized entities or other associations that are trying to provide this function in countries that just weren't offering that service before. So that's something else that this 
Accessible Books Consortium at WIPO is heavily involved with. So as an end user then, is there a way or a means to find out if a book is actually available, even though maybe it's not available from the Canadian Equitable Library here in Canada or mm -hmm. on the chair, but is there, is there a service or a way to find out where it might be available? So the Canadian Library should be able to look at this database and give you that information. Um, and in some cases, we're piloting direct-to-consumer to access to the information as well. And the intention would be that eventually, um, in a matter of, I hope, a pretty short period of time, um, you would be able to just look, look at that information yourself. Uh, when the service started, it was focused more on the libraries sharing the information and um, pr providing service to their customers, their patrons. But as the Marrakesh Treaty comes into effect and it isn't necessary to go through all those steps of publisher clearance um, that sometimes had some restrictions on them that the libraries had to put in place, uh, it becomes more feasible to have a direct-to-consumer model, at least for all of the information. And is it in effect now? Uh, like, have the borders opened up and are we getting more access to books? Oh, yeah. Um, there are definitely a lot of um, accessible works being shared based on the Marrakesh Treaty through the ABC Global Book Service and through other services because um, uh, the treaty does not designate one particular route for accessible format works to flow. And so there are collaborations, there are regional collaborations, there are um, bilateral agreements with co um, countries or libraries that have worked with each other in the past. And yes, um, there are quite a few works being shared through, through the Global Book Service, but also through other services. Right. There's a lot more to do. I don't want to be, you know, unrealistic here. Um, we've had over 500,000 accessible titles uh, made available through the Global Book Service, but of course there are so many more works that need to be made available. And is that going to be in effect for, let's say, like scores of music as well? That's an interesting question, and uh, certainly some of the Libraries do have those collections, and we think we're going to be able to make those works available. We're still working through some of the legal questions on whether any permissions are needed, and if so, what's the best way to implement that, but yes. So here in Canada, of course, you know, we need to have like a, a CNIB client card or, or be a member mm -hmm. of CNIB to access the, the books, and mm -hmm. with the Canadian Equitable Library, they also give us membership to Bookshare. Mm -hmm. Is Are we going to need like a global internet library card to access these other works or is it just going to be the same as we currently do things? We just request a book and we'll have access to it. Um, most of the models that are developing now, that isn't really the, the model that's contemplated. Um, you would continue, be able to get access through your home library or local library. Um, where there are some questions is what happens in situations where there is no uh, local entity like that. 
including in a lot of developing countries? And are there entities that can serve that role? And there's been some discussion about that um, for WIPO, for Bookshare. Um, but more and more, the efforts are to make the information available in a way, and then eventually the works available in a way that will be seamless for the consumer, for the requester, for the reader, um, so that there isn't a necessity to deal with so many different institutions and um, to join different libraries. That is the goal, and I think everybody's working on that with a very positive uh, mindset and intent, and there's a lot of work being done in that area. There are also questions about standards that apply. I'm not an expert in that area, but um, uh, that's something that where work is also being done in order to standardize formats to make those kinds of solutions more practical. So I'd like to actually kind of back up a ways um, mm -hmm. and have you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what was it like beforehand and what was the process that, that got this treaty implemented? Like how, how long did it take? Mm -hmm. who, who was involved? How, how did it all come about? Okay. Happy to talk about that. And uh, I saw a lot of it um, first coming from a member state to uh, WIPO on a delegation and negotiating from that perspective and then joining the organization um, and participating in the diplomatic conference and the process since then. So um, this whole topic of limitations and exceptions to copyright was added to the agenda at WIPO in 2005, a number of Latin American countries proposed that. And one of the topics, among others, that was identified was uh, access to works for persons who were blind and visually impaired, otherwise print disabled. The treaty has a very long name um, to accommodate a number of different scenarios but uh, and different beneficiary populations. But uh, that was one among other topics, like limitations and exceptions for libraries, archives, museums, educational institutions. We're actually still talking about the other topics. Um, uh, discussions here tend to go on for a long time. But there was a very quick recognition that there was a unique case being made by stakeholders for a treaty that could make work accessible works much more available, um, allow them to be made and also to be distributed. And a lot of the impetus, as I said, came from stakeholders, came from the World Blind Union, came from regional associations, national associations, and the um, proponents of the treaty were very effective in working both with national governments and at the multilateral international level at WIPO to uh, propose language, to work with member states, to encourage and demystify and um, uh, reduce fears about uh, the treaty that might have existed in some quarters. So this treaty was really discussed and adopted very quickly. I know it doesn't sound fast to say that the discussion started in 2005, got serious in 2009, and the text was adopted in 2013, but in the multilateral international system, that is very fast. Hmm. And then the Marrakesh Treaty, once the text was adopted, 
It was agreed by member states that instead of the usual 30 member countries having to join before the treaty could come into force and actually have um, uh, legal weight, that it would only be 20 because of the humanitarian goals of the treaty. And once again, that was really achieved in record time. Um, by 2016, the treaty came into force, and then the rate of countries joining the treaty has been very fast. For us um, in the modern era, uh, not talking about the 19th century, but uh, treaties um, in the 20th and 21st centuries, uh, this has been by far the fastest uptake by member states. And I think that speaks to the very compelling case that was made and the kind of unique positioning of this treaty as not just a copyright treaty, but a humanitarian treaty. Um, so I, sorry, I, <clears throat> sorry about that. Um, I sort of have a follow-up question. Um, did technology sort of play a factor in any of that as well? So... I think that that was very relevant in terms of showing that if a treaty could be adopted and these exceptions to copyright could be available, that it would be possible to create and distribute accessible format works quickly and easily. Um, it turns out not to be quite as quick and easy as people had hoped just because of different standards and formats and all of those things, but nevertheless, um, you know, compared to, say, um, creating Braille versions of works and shipping them uh, from country to country, or even um, what was being done by libraries, I, I know it was still being done uh, where I worked previously, uh, cassette tapes or other physical formats. Um, the, the availability of digital formats absolutely speeded up the possibilities um, and so made the case for the treaty a lot more compelling and also made it realistic to think about, um, you know, achieving a lot at some cost, but a lot lower cost than previously. Right. And, and when, you, when we talk about accessible formats, um, exactly mm -hmm. what are we talking about? Like what, what formats are covered by the treaty? So the treaty tries to be technology neutral and future proof. That's a tough thing to do, um, given the fast uh, evolution of technology, but um, it talks in functional terms about the accessible formats that are needed by the beneficiary persons. And so it doesn't limit the types of technology and formats that could be made available. The examples that are given are everything from um, braille, physical braille, refreshable braille, um, to um, uh, large print uh, in various formats, um, and also to um, text-to-speech. So all of those are formats that are covered, but uh, there could be others. And the effort made at the time of discussion and adoption of the treaty was not to cut off future options through language that was too specific. Now, uh, specifically to talk about the, the text-to-speech, was that a bit of a sticking mm -hmm. point? Um, <clears throat> because I know that um, in the past we've heard stories about um, how that, that text-to-speech really sort of bumps up 
hard against things like audiobooks. And for some publishers especially, um, that can be something that they get a little bit leery about. Was was that a, ever a sticking point? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that publishers <laughs> certainly had some concerns um, and expressed those concerns about this treaty, um, not just in terms of audiobooks, but uh, more generally in terms of allowing accessible formats to be made that could then be um, reproduced and distributed around the world in digital format with perfect copies. Uh, But at the same time, there were a lot of publishers who had already worked with um, accessible formats and who recognized that it depends very much on the type of work, but for example, to make educational works accessible, um, text to speech often in itself uh, is not sufficient. And there's a lot more work that needs to go into um, making the best kind of um, accessible format work that can be used in schools, text, mathematics text, or science text, all of this. So. Um, There was some understanding and some experience, but there was certainly also a fear, fear of piracy, not from, and this I think was very clear, not from the beneficiaries of the treaty, but perhaps from others who could get a hold of files and uh, exploit them. As you've been talking, I've I've been thinking back to um, uh, an experience from years ago. I was was, uh, volunteering as as a camp counselor. And uh, while the camp was going on, uh, they were having the global release of one of the Harry Potter novels. And I, I don't remember which one it was, but, uh, but I do remember that um, they were staging it out across the, across the globe and first mm-hmm. releasing it in England and then um, releasing it uh, around the world in each time zone. Uh, but uh, uh, by the time uh, it had hit Vancouver and it was about to be released in Vancouver, somebody had already OCR'd it in London and one mm. of the kids at the camp had downloaded it and shared it to all the kids at camp. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the concern of the publishers that there's going to be piracy, um, mm-hmm. like that, um, I think is really, um, overblown, uh, because al- although somebody had done that, um, it, it doesn't really have any impact at all on their sales, I don't think. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't see how alternative format really uh, does them any harm. But uh, do, do the publishers still push back? So, um, you know, publishers, what publishers say is that they want to make the works accessible um, from the beginning, born digital works that are accessible. And... Um, Uh, So in that sense, I suppose they still have some concerns, Um, but there was a pretty convincing case made by the treaty proponents that of the piracy that goes on, and it certainly does go on with respect to books, um, that there were no proven significant cases that came from beneficiaries of uh, exceptions for accessible formats, that this just you know, there were already a lot of ways in which works could be made available under national exceptions, and that just this just had not led to a big problem. There was also, um, and this, you know, 
talked about the experience in certain groups of countries, not all countries, but um, in uh, countries where there were a lot of beneficiaries who were very eager to buy accessible format works and, and to read them. Um, there was a lot of um, concern that publishers hadn't at that time made a lot of uh, works access available in accessible formats. Um, because what we heard in the earlier discussions was a lot of, you know, we want the same book at the same time at the same price. This is not um, asking for something for free. Now, there are also situations and countries and, and individual beneficiaries where, um, you know, they, they do need something for free because they're not able to otherwise access it. And that's really important. Uh, the case that we work on a lot at WIPO is getting works available in developing countries in local languages that may not be um, likely to be made accessible in another country, works that wouldn't be um, you know, uh, shared around the world or through one of these large uh, databases or libraries. Um, and there, there is a need, and there it's often governments who are being asked to pay um, to make the works available. Um, but that's also something where publishers had already been working with uh, the countries and the beneficiary groups. And so really the treaty helps to make that more efficient, but uh, those were projects and needs that had been acknowledged already. So um, I think the point that you're making <coughs> that, um, um, you know, these fears were not proven to be having an impact on markets. That point was definitely made in the discussions. And in the end, uh, no, despite concerns, uh, which they articulated during the negotiations, the publishers supported the treaty and they have continued to work certainly with our ABC, Accessible Books Consortium, but also with other projects around the world to build up these databases of information. And also they've pushed to have um, training and, and uh, programming for publishers on accessible publishing. And there are a lot of small publishers looking for ways to do that um, that they can afford. So that's something else that we've been working on and working on in um, conjunction with all of the stakeholders in the area, including the proponents of the treaty. I know one of the problems that uh that we've had in the past when we're trying to uh, make a, a text accessible is that oftentimes the uh, the publishers uh, would either be reluctant to to give over the files to to allow that to happen or the files that they would provide would be largely inaccessible themselves oftentimes graphical pdf um, mm -hmm. is that changing now or are, we, are you starting to see better more accessible documents coming straight from the publishers it is changing, and uh, a lot of publishers have expressed an interest in having it change further. Um, it's also an area where there are, um, you know, um, resource constraints uh, for a lot of publishers in a lot of countries. But uh, they're really looking for ways to do that um, because they say they want to be the ones providing the accessible formats. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we have heard that there's been a lot of improvement, a lot of progress that's been made. There are still um, 
areas where a lot of work remains to be done. This is also an area where this uh, standard setting and uh, using common formats um, can be really helpful. And a lot more publishers are aware of those issues than involved in those discussions. Talk to me a little bit about about the the aspect of, of this being a, a, a cross border. Um, mm-hmm. Did that make everything more complicated or less complicated? Well, it depends on the context. I think it was an obvious way to make the distribution of accessible format works less complicated to allow for cross border transfer of these works that were created pursuant to copyright exceptions, it did make the legal discussions and negotiations more difficult uh, because it was really breaking new ground in terms of having cross-border, I guess, authorization for the transfer of works created according to accessible formats. It really required some creative thinking about how copyright could work and about how it could be possible to apply those cross-border principles to works that were created pursuant to these exceptions and limitations. So uh, that, you know, I think that made the negotiations more complicated, but the result is that the treaty is much more useful and effective than if those provisions had not been included. Right. You, you've mentioned negotiations a, a bunch of times, but who, who actually sits down at the table in these negotiations? Who all, who all sit in there? Right. So the um, formal, ne- formal negotiations take place um, of the treaty text, in this case, took place in what's called the Standing Committee on Copyright and Related Rights at WIPO. And that's a committee made up of member states. Most of the countries in the world are members of the one or more of the main copyright treaties. Uh, The foundational one first adopted in the 19th century is the Berne Convention. And so all the members of these treaties and um, eligibility is pretty broad. So as I say, um, most countries, I think we're up to 178 member states um, who are part of this committee and part of these treaties. They are the actual negotiators. The text has to be adopted by them. However, we have really liberal participation of observers in our committee process. So observers are um, able to speak in the committee and to offer their viewpoints directly in the discussions. In addition, uh, there's a significant amount of lobbying that goes on uh, of the member states, both during the meetings, uh, there are always lots of side meetings and consultations, and in capitals at home, because the member states often will come with a predetermined position, at least a starting position on a negotiation. So where we generally start in a negotiation is with the text and a text does have to be offered by a member state. Often we'll have interested parties, uh, interested observers developing a text and then looking for member states who might be sponsors for it. But uh, um, that, 
formal initiative has to come from member states. And it can be actually just one that convinces other member states this is a topic we should discuss. And then the member states start to discuss text. Uh, drafting takes place in different ways. It can be in the full committee with everyone looking at uh, text on a screen. Uh, um, and we certainly had to work on making sure all the texts were accessible and available throughout all the negotiations, which was good for us to uh, um, update our methods in, in that sense as well. And we continue to do that for all of our work. But um, And then, of course, there'd be a lot of informal discussions and negotiations. And for example, with this treaty, a group of member states got together and had some side meetings um, outside the regular meeting context to try and make more progress on the text. And so this specialized committee on copyright considered the various proposals, finally came up with the text, took it to the WIPO General Assembly of all of the member states of WIPO, where they agreed that the, the concept was developed enough that it seemed like there would be success in adopting a treaty, and they agreed to have a diplomatic conference. That conference to which all of the eligible member states, which is most of the countries in the world, were invited, was held in Marrakesh, Morocco, in, 20, in June 2013. And there, uh, the member states negotiated the final text. And so there, uh, which is usual for these kinds of negotiations, a lot of things, smallish uh, and even some significant issues, had been left in brackets in the working text. And so those needed to be resolved. And as negotiations went on, sometimes the member states added more brackets. And uh, so with all the goodwill in the world, everyone went to Marrakesh, I think, thinking, all right, you know, there's consensus here. We should be able to get this done. There was a point in that diplomatic conference where the president of the conference, who was from Morocco, that's always a, a local official, uh, in this case, it was a, a minister, the minister of communications said, look, I'm closing the airport. I'm not letting you people leave until you finish this treaty negotiation. <laughs> and then everybody got down to work again and, and got it done. But um, there was a point there where we were a little nervous, like, whoa, maybe <laughs> we didn't plan enough time for this conference. Maybe there was more to do here than we thought. And at those conferences, in addition to all the member states, all the observers come as well, or as many as um, uh, can get funding and are interested. It's open to all of our official observers, and, and we're very open on official observers, so it's quite easy to uh, become an official observer if you show any stake in the work of the committee. Um, and so everyone was there in Marrakesh, uh, quick continuing with the formal negotiations, informal negotiations, um, lobbying on the side. And then at the end, it came down to the real final negotiation took place in an informal meeting where the beneficiaries were not present, but they were getting reports by text, by email, um, constantly. So when the final bracket was resolved, the final agreement was reached, uh, this cheer went up from all the beneficiaries who were in another room 
um, next door, but uh, they'd heard immediately and uh, were celebrating. So that was very exciting, very motivating for everyone. Uh, it was a very joyful time. <laughs> All right. Well, so now just to put a cap on this then, because um, you did mention that there's still lots of work to do. So tell us a little bit about that, like sort of what's, what's still left um, for the treaty. So um, for the treaty, well, we've got about 90 uh, member states, but we'd like to get this. And we think there is potential to get this treaty to be near universal. Um, so up uh, close to 200 members. Um, and there's a lot of goodwill. There are a lot of countries still interested, but uh, sometimes the process of getting there with particular member states uh, can be quite complicated or time-consuming, and it may be that their copyright law needs other work to support a treaty on exceptions and limitations. Mm -hmm. um, you have the exceptions and limitations to certain rights, like rights to make copies, which are normally reserved to the copyright holder. You can give exceptions to that, as happens through this treaty, but uh, if the right isn't in the law or isn't in the law with respect to digital works, for example, then it may be that a broader update to a copyright law is needed in order to implement the Marrakesh Treaty. So we spend a lot of time working with member states that want to join the treaty, and then once they join, um, they deposit their instrument and uh, three months later, they're part of the treaty, then to have any impact at all, the treaty needs to be implemented. And that is in the national law, sometimes in regulations, um, but in member states that don't already have an institutional structure or framework for making accessible format works, for distributing them, for uh, providing educational materials um, where needed. There, there's a lot of, we, we use the term capacity building, um, but you know, training development uh, that's needed and often there are huge resource needs as well. So um, we have projects through the Accessible Books Consortium to work with local representatives to develop these authorized entities that can join the global book service and be the national distributor of accessible format works, both those created in that country and those that are created in other countries and sent across borders. Um, and we've made it a real priority to try and train beneficiary persons, persons who are blind, visually impaired, or otherwise print disabled, to create the accessible <clears throat> format works and to distribute them and to really be a part of every part of the system. In a lot of countries, we also include publishers, um, especially small local publishers who may have very little experience in this area. And we'll also try to include the government representatives who might be regulating this area. And that happens in different parts of the government uh, in different countries. So to bring everyone together to make the treaty potential a reality. And that's always very exciting. And, um, you know, when there are successful projects, we've also had a lot of cooperation from certain member states that have funded some of that work. So we have a 
program called Funds in Trust, through which, for example, Australia, um, uh, Republic of Korea have given significant amounts to support these kinds of projects in countries. Sometimes it's in their region. It, it varies what the criterion are. but And there are other countries that are saying they're interested in contributing to that work. So um, then there's also, as I mentioned before, the standards work. So we have some colleagues working on that. And we're working with um, entities like the DAISY Foundation, DAISY, um, <coughs> excuse me, a foundation like Bookshare, like others to um, come up with common standards and also to work on some of these large database projects in order to just have the information available about what works are available. So, um, you know, we're trying to get more treaty members and then trying to implement the treaty in all the member states and then also come up with uh, structures to make the cross-border potential a reality. And in all these areas, there's so much to do. Um, and then also so working with publishers to train them on uh, creating accessible format works right from the beginning. So um, it's exciting. There's a lot happening. A lot more works are becoming available. But at the same time, uh, now we commonly hear a statistic that perhaps in developed countries, 10% of works are accessible. Um, that is better than it was before, but there's still a very long way to go. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like you won't be taking vacation anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we really appreciate you taking the time out to come and talk to us and, and breaking it down for us because, you know, we've, we've tried to talk about, about the treaty um, for a while now. Uh, and it's and it can be kind of hard to sort of really wrap your head around when you're not sort of in the middle of it. So really appreciate you coming coming on and, and helping us uh, really make sense of it. Very glad to do it. Uh, so glad that you're interested. Great. And actually, it, if is there a good place to go if if people out there are sort of interested in learning more about the treaty itself? Is is there a good is there a good website to go to? Uh, well, we would certainly uh, invite people to come to the WIPO website and particularly um, probably the Accessible Books uh, Consortium uh, site or link, and I'm happy to provide you with those links. Sure. We will put them in the show notes for sure. Okay, that'd be great. Excellent. All right, Michelle. Well, thank you again so much, and uh, we will let you go so you can actually enjoy your evening. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks <laughs> right. a lot for having me. All right. Thanks for care, taking Michelle. the time. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Wow, there's a lot more moving parts to that than I thought. Well, I don't know, like, if you've even gone to the WIPO website and actually tried reading the treaty, it's just like, holy cow. Well, <laughs> like, that's what I meant. Yeah, it's it's nuts to try, because I have. I, I mean, I, I've we again, we've talked about this on past shows, and I've tried in the past to really go somewhere and really learn about it. And your yeah. eyes glaze over within, you know, four or five paragraphs. And you're just like, I have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. So it was great to have her on to sort of really break it down and, and really get a sense of, of how important it is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the fact that this thing isn't, isn't front page news and, and hasn't been front, front page news um, for years since 2013 is, is a little bit shocking. Yeah, nobody talks about it. <clears throat> 
But it does. It has such a huge impact globally. Um, and the fact that, you know, this is kind of the first of its kind, um, something that's that's cross borders like this. Well, I think, you know, for for the layperson like us, it, it seems like a pretty simple thing, right? It's like, well, they, they need alternative access, give them alternative access. Simple. No problem. But uh, when it comes to the, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts, the, the moving parts to it, you know, there's there's an awful lot more to it. Well, and that's the thing. And you you do kind of wonder, like, well, what's what's holding things back? Like, what's why isn't it just universal? Why wouldn't every country just be like, yeah, we're in? Um, but, you know, there's obviously politics are involved and, you know, and then you get down to the level of publishers. And so, yeah, I can see how how it can get really complicated really fast. Well, she said some copyright laws may need to be updated in certain right. countries as well, right? So yeah, yeah, you're dealing with different laws in different countries. So yeah, I'm sure. But there. But that's interesting. Like you brought up an interesting point. I thought Ryan. I mean, the the idea of some sort of like a global library card is is a really interesting, a really interesting idea. Well, you know how how would I, as somebody who's blind and wanting to access books or materials, find out what's actually available. Like, you know, maybe I'm talking to somebody and they say, yeah, you know, check out this new book from so-and-so. And I'll look and see, okay, well, it's not available in Kindle. It's not available from Sela. It's not available from Bookshare. Where can I go, I guess? Well, I mean, I mean, I think the idea is that it trickles down. Like once a book becomes you know, accessible in that accessible format, it, w- it would trickle down to, say, like, CELA or wherever. Well, Michelle um, was saying that, you know, I could actually talk to my library and they have access to these databases. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But I'm assuming that they would have it. You know, once it becomes accessible, they would have access to that at, at that local level. But, I mean, it, it, what's, what interests me is that, like, what if you were here and you wanted, um, you know, to use the example that we've been talking about, like the Harry Potter book, but you wanted it in a different language. Say yeah. English wasn't your, 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 your first language and you wanted it in whatever, at, at Hindi. Right. You know, if you had a global library card, well, you might be able to access that work in a different language because you could just, you know, take it, take it out, quote, um, you know, from from a, a global library where they would have access to all the different languages as well. So, you know, as as a CELA library member, I also have access to Bookshare, but you know that doesn't really give me access to stuff in the UK or stuff like you say in Japan or you know other developing countries, right? So, you know, we are still very limited in in our access to material. Yeah, well, and I think that that. Anytime you talk about trying to do something on a global level like that, you mm. bring in, in a level of, of you know, com, um, you bring a, a level of complexness that, complexness, that's not a word. Complexity, maybe. Yes, thank you. You bring, <laughs> whenever you try to do something like that on a global level, you bring in a level of complexity um, that that I'm sure is, is really hard to navigate. Yeah, so, well, she says, you know, there's 90 countries signed on and, you know, more and more talks are going on. So, but hey, listen, you know, they went from 3% um, to 10%. So, I mean, it's that in, in only a few years, you know, in less than a decade. So, yep. you know, that's, that's definitely making some progress. It is. 
So I'm glad people that are smarter than us are working on these problems because absolutely, we can't even wrap our heads and around putting on the uh, mute button. <laughs> I don't know that you've uh, lifted the bar very high there, Rob. <laughs> well, certainly not at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah, indeed. Um, all right. Hey, Ryan. Yes, Rob. Uh, where can people find us? They can find us online at atbanter.com. They can also drop us an email if they so desire. Cowbell at atbanter.com. I'm so glad things well, have gone back well to Well struck. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, you know what else? What? They can also find us on Facebook. Yes. And they can find us on Twitter. Yes. And occasionally, yes. we might even do something on Instagram. Yes, yes, yes. yes. We're on TikTok. No, 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 we're not on TikTok. No, exactly. we are not. <laughs> that's scary, man. That article. But the, that, that's the weird thing about it is that I remember hearing about that, though, like before it even became popular. Like that's not I don't feel like that's not that's not uncommon knowledge. Exactly. I don't think a lot of people are aware of just how vulnerable their information is through that app. Yeah, I exactly. It's crazy. Yeah. All right. Anyways, um, all right. Well, that is going to about do it for us this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Big thanks to Michelle Woods all the way from Switzerland to join Woo. us to talk about the Marrakesh Treaty. And we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H.com. Or call us toll-free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com.